This podcast is brought to you by Seekers Hub. To listen to the rest of our shows, please visit seekershub.fm. You can also subscribe to our weekly email newsletter called Compass, where we'll send the best of Seekers Hub's content straight to your inbox every single week. To get on the list, visit seekershub.org slash compass. وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد رسول الله بلغ الرسالة وأدى الأمانة ونصح الأمة فكشف الله تعالى به الغمة وجاهد في سبيل ربه حتى أتاه اليقين فصل اللهم وسلم عليه وعلى آله وصحبه والتابعين لهم بإحسان وبعد Hijra and Aqalliyat, migration and minorities, which uh, probably branches out from the discussions that we've had up to now. We've spoken about Khilafah, spoken about rules of warfare, various different things. And eventually it was probably inevitable that we're going to come to the discussion of state and citizenship. It is something that affects us in more than one way, uh, being a minority as we are, and not the only one, many other minorities as well. Some opening remarks. It is important for us to be able to see any topic of this nature that we address within its historical context. If we remove the historical context, we will find ourselves constantly trying to produce permanent answers for temporary situations. We will try to give normal solutions to abnormal problems. History is not the same. It doesn't stay the same throughout. It's something that moves all the time. It's a matter of tilka al-ayyam al-udawiluha nas It's kullayum. It changes from day to day, from period to period. And in the history of our ummah, what happened at Badr al-Uhud, what happened at Fathu Makkah, what happened uh, during the fall of Baghdad, and what happened thereafter, the rise of Islam, every period was different. And for every period, we have to look at it in light of what pertains to that particular situation within the broad spectrum of what the Quran, the Sunnah, our, uh, the, uh, the, the fiqh of the fuqaha, our sharia in general has to say. So for that purpose, I will first sketch the entire history of Islam from Nubuwa up to the present day in five or six different periods. We've gone through different periods and each period brought about certain developments of a historical, of a geopolitical, of a demographic nature that creates different kinds of problems. So yesterday's answer might not solve today's problem. Every time there's something different. Initially, we will start uh, to each of these periods. I want to give a different name. Firstly, Islam emergent. Islam as it was emerging. From Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's time, the period of Nubuwa, the period of Khilafah Rashidah. Then from there we move on, Islam triumphant. During the Khilafah Umawiyah, the Khilafah Abbasi, the early period of the Khilafah Abbasiyah, Islam was triumphant on the battlefield. Islam was triumphant politically speaking. Islam was triumphant in terms of spreading its uh, geographical presence to other parts of the world. Then came another period. So that was the early Abbasid period. Then, probably speaking from the, the two great incursions into the world of Islam, the Crusaders from the one side, the Mongols from the other side, and the thing that symbolizes it best is probably the fall of Baghdad. Islam under attack. Islam has come under attack now. And during that period, a different set of uh, problems imposed itself upon the Muslim world and the solutions happened to change from what we had before. Out of the agony, in fact, this particular period was, is categorized by some as Islam in agony. I think if you read Karan Armstrong's book, The Shorter History of Islam, she calls it the period of Islam agonistes. Islam in agony during that period. Attacked from both sides. And then what happened thereafter? Out of that agony came another khayr. Out of that agony was born Islam imperial. The two great empires of the Muslim world at that time. The Ottoman Empire in the West, the Mughal Empire in the East. And then came the second agony, colonialism. And that lasted for a while, two, three hundred years, up to the middle of the 20th century. Colonialism lasted. 
Then came the First World War. Then came the Second World War. And the colonizers could no longer maintain a colonial empire. And the colony started crumbling. In some ways, in other ways it did not crumble. So then came what? Post-colonial Islam up to the present day. This happened from 1947. India was the first and then thereafter, 52, Egypt gets independence, various different countries, all over Africa, independence comes. The so what starts happening now? Independence comes about, but together with independence come the breaking up of that Islam imperial that we knew once upon a time. No more, there's no more a Khilafah Uthmaniyya. What this particular period, the post-colonial period, means that the polity that was once upon an Islam, the, the country that we speak about, here's a piece of land ruled by the Muslims is no longer the same. Turkey is only Turkey. The Arab world gets cut up into little bits and pieces. What was once upon a time, Bilad al-Sham, now becomes Syria, Jordan, Palestine and Lebanon. And the same can be extrapolated for all the other parts of Islam. No longer one single polity. A whole lot of countries spread over the globe. Spread from Morocco on the one hand to Indonesia on the other side. Now, with a polity such as this, with, with a political situation such as this, different governments ruling different countries, people have become used to a different kind of thinking during this time. They had forgotten what it is like to have Sharia as the law that emerges out of your court of law. Because they've, been used to, they've become used to 300 years of British rule, Dutch rule. All those kind of things happen. Now comes the age of Islam resurgent. Now comes Islam resurgent. The age of Islam resurgence is the one that you and I are living in right now. And in this age of resurgence, we are grasping about for solutions to problems whose complexity go way beyond what's in the textbook. The complexity of the problems that we face are not as simple as there's the eye of the Quran, it applies exactly uh, uh, mutatus mutannus. As it's over there, that's how it applies. There's the text from the fifth book, it says like that, it must be done exactly like that. No, things change over, over time. And much of the problem that we have to do with here is that new problems or new complexities, uh, all kinds of sophistication in the problem and we look for a simplified solution. Simplified solutions are not going to work. The problem has to be addressed with the same amount of complexity and sophistication that, we, that went into the problem originally. Only then will a commensurate solution come about. But we are living in the age of Islam resurgent. And uh, what we take from there is that the Muslim always remains optimistic. There is, Tomorrow is not far. It's going to come. As dark as the night becomes, it's dark as before the dawn. So we remain optimistic. But during this period, we're grappling with some problems. We are grappling with some problems. One thing that must be understood about those problems is the transience of those problems. They are there now. They won't be there forever. They won't be there forever. So in whatever steps we take to address them, let's understand that it is a problem that's in front of us right now. It's not going to remain. At some point or the other, Faraj from Allah's side will come. So these are the various periods in our history, and we have to look at them. Every time it's going to be a different thing. What did the ulama think at the time when Hulagu marched into Baghdad, and the Khilaf was kicked to death, rolled up in a carpet? No Khalifa left any longer. What happens? What do Muslims do at the time? How do they reassert their own authority? Initially, you need to adjust yourself to the new situation. Until such time comes that a new Khilafah can be declared from Cairo once again, under the Ayyubis and then Imam Luks. What would they do now when the, 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 what became the puppet Khilafah of the Abbasids in Cairo? Sultan Salim, the Ottoman, marches upon Cairo, carries off the last uh, Khalifa from there, and then the Ottomans declare Khilafah of their own. For the first time in history, one of the important shurut of Khilafah went out of the door. The Ottomans are not Qurashiyun Nasab. But what was done? We adjusted ourselves to a situation that we had in front of us. Our history of Khilafah throughout, from after the Khilafah Rashida, our history of Khilafah has been one of normalization of the abnormal. Uh, the manner in which some of the, uh, from, from the house of Marwan, the second house of Abu Umayyah that became the, khali uh, the Khalifas. It wasn't according to any of the manners that Azad Mufti Radawul Haqsab spoke about now. It was through warfare. Abdullah ibn Zubair on the one side. On the other side there was um, Abdul, um, uh, Marwan and then his son Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. When the Abbasids acceded to the Khilafah after that, do not even imagine that there was an election along the lines of Saqifa Bani Sa'id or anything of the kind. It is the Abbasids come with a bloodthirsty revolution, 
a bloodthirsty revolution, overthrow the Umayyads, go to the extent of exhuming their graves and burning corpses in there, and they become the Khalifa. It wasn't a normal situation, but then we normalize it as time goes on. And then the Abbasid Khalifa, they started with the help of people whose Aqeedah was very suspect at the time, Abu Muslim Khurasani and his followers, and afterwards they got rid of them, and then the Aqeedah settled down, and we have Harun al-Rashid, and we have Abu Jafar al-Mansur, many, many of whom we are proud about. So the history of Khilafah has not been uh, exactly according to textbook. The history of Khilafah by the time that Abu Hassan Mawardi wrote his Ahkam Sultaniyya, it was a matter of normalizing the abnormal. It was a matter of what do we do with the Mutaghallib Bisayf? He wasn't elected according to any of the rules, but he grabbed power, he did what we call today a coup d'etat. So what, would, what do we do? Saman wa ta'atan. We have to have a situation, it has to be properly handled, and we, we choose the, the, the path, of, path of less resistance and the akhaf al-dararain. That's how things had always been done. But now, it wasn't a matter of uh, choice often, it was a matter of what other choice do you have? What other choice do you have? You have to make do with what is there and move on to the next step because Islam needs to continuously march forward. We couldn't always go back to the legit, legit, legitimacy question. Legitimacy questions would often be overshadowed by other concerns. Now in the age of Islam, oh, I thought I got 20 minutes left or something like that. I saw Mona earlier, every time a paper comes and a paper comes, and uh, I thought that... You have enough time, huh? Inshallah. Um, so now when we live in this age of resurgence, we are grappling around for all, any kind of solution. And the solutions that we are grappling on are not necessarily the best solutions. But uh, someone is trying something, let's see, how do we see it? Now we take that. Our exercise here is one of taking what is there, judging it in light of what uh, the norm would have. What does our fiqh say about it? My specific topic is that of migration and minorities, I cannot help to overlap onto other things here and there because they are connected somehow or the other. If I drift too far of the topic, just bring me back to it. It's a bad habit. Anyway, so now we come, when we are going to ask the question of state and citizenship, then every period is going to be different. In the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the first 13 years in Makkah Mukarramah, what were they? Minority living in a hostile situation. Makkah Mukarramah, Dar al-Harb. Minority in a hostile situation. After a few years, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam orders them go on hijrah to Habasha. Minority in a benevolent situation. Two different kinds of citizenship here. There are Muslims living here, waiting for permission from Allah ta'ala. In the meantime, send a group of us under Uthman ibn Affan and Ja'far ibn Abi Talib twice. Go to Habasha, live there because there is a king there that does not do injustice. They went there. And they stayed there for as long as they stayed. Towards the end of the presentation, inshallah, I want to come back to that. And then came Hijrah. Now, the Hijrah is an event in the history of Islam. It looms so large in the Muslim imagination that it just blots out everything. Our tarikh starts from there. We start counting the dates from there. And our entire political outlook is colored by the Hijrah. When we think about the Hijrah, immediately the world divides into what? Darul Islam, Darul Kufr. Because now Medina is Darul Islam, and then Makkah was Darul Kufr, and then you had in the, you had to migrate from there. You had no option but to migrate from there. In the Ladina Tawafahum al Malaika to Vadimi and Fusihim Kalu Fima Kuntum, Kalu Kunna Mustadafina fil Ard. If this Mustadafina fil Ard, Allah Tala says, Alam Takun Ardullahi Wasiatan Fatuhajiro Fiha, and this is not a small matter. If you don't make that Hijra Faulaika Mawahum Jahannam was at Masira. However, there were exceptions to the rule. So from that moment onwards, we started looking at the world only in terms of those two issues. Only in terms of this ayah. And then started the wars. And we kind of uh, lost sight of what had happened once upon a time, the hijrah to Habasha. That was set on the back burner for a while. Set on the back burner, everyone, in the writing of our political, uh, what shall I say now, political law, in the writing of the Kitab al-Siyar, which was a matter of great uh, uh, interest among the ulama in those early years. Um, you know, these days, a student studies in madrasa, and what is he? All the fiqhi ikhtilafat of ibadat between the madahib. Back then, this wasn't the focus. People wouldn't really be concerned about uh, what do we say now, Masail, of how do you make salah and how do you do this and that. No, seer was one of the main focal points of our fiqh at the time. Just to give you an example, Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, faqih of his time, he, uh, um, what shall I say, 
Masail of Siyar, he teaches his students, Imam Muhammad writes them down. Two of the six seminal works of the Hanafi Madhab is Siyar. Siyar Kabir, Siyar Sagheer. Then come Jamiul Kabir and Jamiul Sagheer. But the two books, imagine, two books of the six are devoted, dedicated to the issue of international law, law of interaction between nations. Um, this seer, Imam Awza'i comes to know about it. And he says, what does Abu Hanifa know about seer? We are the people of jihad. We live on the borders. We know the Masail of seer. So he, make rad, he writes a refutation of Imam Abu Hanifa. Imam Abu Yusuf gets to know about Awza'i making rad on my ustad. He writes a rad upon that. Kitab al-rad ala seer al-Awza'i. And finally, Imam Shafi'i sits in arbitration between all of them. And he takes Kitab al-rad ala seer al-Awza'i. And he says, Abu Hanifa said, Awza'i said, Abu Yusuf answered, and this is my contribution. Arbitration between them. This was the area of uh, uh, activity of the fuqaha at the time. Now, during that time, what happened? How did they view the world? Actually, did the exercise the other day. Page through all the volumes, mostly to uh, the, the, the index of Saraqsi Sharh of Siyar Kabir. Five, six volumes, try to see what, what content does it have. It only looks at Muslims living in the Muslim state, Darul Islam. When they go to Darul Kufr for jihad, what must they do in there? What should they do? What can't they do? What mustn't they do? But they must come back again. They don't even delve for a moment upon the fact of citizenship of a Darul Kufr. Why not? During this period now, this is the period of Islam triumphant. Um, citizenship of a Darul Kufr, who wants to live in Darul Kufr? You should live here. There is no question of living there at all. There is no question of living there at all. Did it ever happen that Muslims during this triumphant period of Islamic history became citizens? Yes, against their will. There was an ever-moving fault line between the Muslim state and the Byzantine Empire, moving forward, backward all the time. There wasn't an area that you can draw a line or put a fence and say this is the border. Sometimes we conquer into their territory and often they conquer into our territory. When they conquer into our territory, they capture land, they capture people, they take them away. But no fiqh developed for them. There was no fiqh over Darul Kufr. The reason? Because there was no community. Why was there no community? No, fiqh responds to ground realities and it corresponds therefore to ground realities. Fiqh speaks about what really happens on the ground. And when a particular community became a minority in a kafir state, they would either be killed, enslaved, forcibly converted, lost to the world of Islam. It didn't happen that any of them survived. So no fiqh could develop for them. So there was only one thing during this period that they said, find yourself in Darul Kufr, make your way to this side. As soon as you can. Make your way to this side, there's no question of staying in that part of the world. The second reason why no fiqh developed for them is that sometimes, the first one I said was, uh, the, 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 the lands captured, people are taken. Secondly, land is captured and we take it back. Mu'tasims, the famous Mu'tasim, wa Mu'tasima, Amuriya, the Byzantine Sultan uh, Emperor came and conquered. And then the woman said, Ya wa Mu'tasima. And Mu'tasim said, We'll send them such an army that will recapture that place. The first of them will be there, the vanguard will be there, the rearguard will be in Baghdad. So he sends the army, so we recapture it very, very soon. And there's no question of a minority because they become part of the Dawla Islamiyah once again. Amuria lies right in the center of Anatolia, what we know as Turkey today. Amuria lies over there. So far did they conquer in. But eventually it was recaptured again. Antakya went to the Byzantines, Tarsus went to the Byzantines, and he stayed there for many, many years, never came back to us until the Ottomans invaded and took over those parts of the world again. So they, no fiqh developed. As time goes on, now during the latter period of the Abbasid Empire, what started happening? The Abbasid Empire was an empire in name towards the, uh, the, the end. Every regional king declared his own independence. And then he sends to the Khalifa of Baghdad for a robe of uh, uh, investing him as a sultan, just giving him the nominal authority to rule in the name of the Khalifa. But all of them are really independent. Came to such a stage that uh, the farce of a strong Khilafah was eventually just taken over by the Buwayhids, who were Shia, marched upon Baghdad, took over the sultan, and said, Baghdad is ours. We have a Khalifa just for the sake of legitimacy. Khalifa has no power. They were removed by the uh, Saljuks uh, not very long after that. But that was the decline of the Khilafah. The Khilafah started declining then already. My topic is not Khilafah. Come back to my topic, citizenship. During this period now, for the first time we find the Fuqaha speaking about living in a Darul Kufr. Before they didn't speak about it at all. 
Now they start speaking about living in a Darul Kufr. Because what started happening now, what was once upon a time a hostile situation is not always as hostile as it used to be before. So now you find Muslims living there. Example, Sicily. Sicily was ruled by the Muslims. The Normans came, King Roger, the Norman came, conquered Sicily, kicked out the Muslim rulers. Muslims remained staying in Sicily. They remained citizens of Sicily. They had their own qadis. They had their own mahakim. Idrisi wrote his famous history under the tutelage, under the patronage of King Roger II of Sicily. Not a Muslim state, but Muslims were living there in relative peace. Muslims were, uh, Muslim rule was kicked out, but Muslims remained for a while. So the question would inevitably come, can you stay or can't you stay? Now, the ulama started speaking about it. First of all, hijrah. That's how we call the topic. How did they look at the issue of hijrah? Two major approaches were taken on hijrah. The Hanafi approach and the rest. The Hanafi approach says that hijrah became mansukh already. Hijrah was abrogated. When Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said, La hijrata ba'd al-fatih, that wasn't just situational for what was there. The entire concept of hijrah is now mansukh. There's no hijrah. You leave one place and go and live in another. It can become somewhat problematic because now that is not looking at the situation of what about a Muslim in Darul Harb. So one of the latter Hanafis um, in the 700s, Qawamuddin al-Kaki, you know the Sharh on, on, on Hidayah called Mi'raj al-Diraya. And Ibn Nujayim quotes him as saying there's one istithna from the hukum of Nasr. There's one istithna. And that is al-Harbi al-Ladhi yuslimu fi dar al-Harb. He must make hijrah. So while theoretically you said that there's no hijrah any longer, hijrah has become mansukha. There's one exception which was made by this one, Hanafi Faqih, and says, no, that person still has to come back. The Jumhur's view, Shafi'is, Hanbalis, and Malikis, they look at it differently. They consider two factors. Do you have to or don't you have to make hijrah? They consider two factors. Imkan idhar al-deen. Can you practice, can you establish iqamah to deen? Can you practice your deen or can't you? Secondly, is it possible for you to make hijrah or not? Now, if you take two factors, that creates four situations. On the one hand, you're going to find a person, he can't make idharuddin and he can't make hijrah. Circumstances make it such. Hijrah is not possible for him. And he can't even make idharuddin. That person is illa al-mustadhafina min al-rijal wal-nisa. He is ma'adhur, they say. He's ma'adhur. Then you find the second person. He cannot make idharuddin. And it's possible for him to make hijrah. For him, hijrah is wajibah. Hijrah is not mansukh according to Jhur. They say he must make hijrah. And as I said, Al-Kaki agrees with this view, says he must make hijrah as well. You don't stay there, you have to leave. Why? Because you can't make uh, idhar al-deen. It's more important for you to be able to practice your deen than even to preserve your own life here now. Because you're going to die, your children, what's going to happen? History has told us the story of what had happened. So make hijrah. Now saying... As a rule, make hijrah is not always considering other realities as well. Sometimes in Spain, when Spain was taken, they made it extremely difficult for Muslims to make hijrah. You had to pay huge amounts of money to make hijrah. So anyway, some managed and some didn't. So the fuqaha looked at it and said that if you cannot make yadharuddin, but you can make hijrah, it's wajib upon you to make hijrah. Third person. He can make yadharuddin and he can make hijrah. He's got both choices. The country in which he lives, they say you can live here as a Muslim, no problem. Practice your deen by all means. And if you want to emigrate, you can emigrate also. Great amount of benevolence. Bismillah. You want to stay, stay. You want to go, go. It's your choice. Your deen won't suffer. Your dunya won't suffer. Yeah, these three madhaib say that this person, hijrah is not wajiba for him. It's mustahabba. If you want to make hijrah, you can go. You want to stay? By all means, stay. Imam Abul Hassan Mawardi goes on to add another addition to it. As an addition to it. States it in Al-Hawi Al-Kabir. Imam Nawawi quotes it from him, Rawdad Al-Talibin. Mawardi says, this particular person here, let's add one further factor. One is Imkan Iqamat al-Din. One is Imkan al-Hijrah. Then there's another thing. In rujiya bi baqaihi nashrul islam wajaba alayhi al-maqam. If there's hope that through your staying there, he said, mustahab for you to make Hijrah. But your staying there will spread din, you must stay, don't go away. You stay there. This was Mawardi died in the year 450. This wasn't post-colonial fiqh. They spoke about it very early on already. Now mentioning all of these to say the diqqa and the precision that the fuqaha considered all of these factors before saying something. And then of course you get the last person that it's possible for him to make iqamah to deen but he can't emigrate. You know who's that? That's you and I today. Where are you going to emigrate to? Where are you going to emigrate? We can make iqamah to deen but where are you going to emigrate to? 
later on when I want to speak about some realities about hijrah in the contemporary world I want to come back to this point so that person if it was jais for the previous person to stay then bilawla he can stay as well so four different persons four different rulings for them this is how the fuqah have looked at the issue of hijrah during this particular period here now that was the age of Islam being triumphant and thereafter we go into the age of Islam becoming what? Under attack by others. This is when the minorities were being created by and large. This is when others started, I mean, uh, others started taking over control over the world of Islam. Mongols march and take over our countries. Non-Muslims ruling our countries. What do we do? We adjusted to the situation. We adjusted. Initially, what we try and do, you, jihad against them was there. We tried to uh, make jihad against them, those jihads. Uh, just about every jihad failed against them. They were unstoppable. The Mongols were unstoppable. They eventually, alhamdulillah, stopped at Ain Jalut. But initially they were unstoppable. So what do you do? There comes a time when you realize this is as much as you could do. Now try and adjust to the new situation. When the new situation came, what did they do? They said, okay, we accept it. We accept. We've been defeated. Crestfallen. Now they started working at normalizing the abnormal situation. It wasn't 100 years when the Mongols became Muslim. The conquerors became Muslims. It takes a while. It takes a while. Sometimes we, we are hasty. So we're sitting with the situation. We want a solution right now. We want a solution right now. The solution is there must be something established right now. These things take time. Read history and see how long did it take for these solutions to come in. So when Islam was under attack, when Islam was under agony, they did not respond immediately by saying, let's fight to the last man and fight to death. They didn't also say, let's pack up and leave and go somewhere else. The easy solution is to stay make hijrah. There are some logistical, some demographic, some geo geographical realities you have to consider before you make a large-scale judgment that everyone has to make hijrah. History has a number of examples that I want to touch upon to show how hijrah is not always just a feasible uh, thing to do. Anyway, we recovered after the agony and we established the two great empires, Ottoman Empire, Mughal Empire. And Islam was again triumphant for a while. But لِكُلِّ شَيْنِ ذَا مَا تَمَّ نُقْصَانُ فَلَا يُغَرُّ بِطِيبِ الْعَيْشِ إِنسَانُ Today you're on top and then the wheel turns and you go to the bottom again. While all of this was happening, Spain became the place where Christians started the reconquest. That's the furthest that we ever uh, uh, penetrated into Europe from the West, entire Spain. As... Uh, uh, the sub said this morning, 800 years of rule in Spain. But 800 years doesn't do... The just the, the, the scripture, 800 years, doesn't do any kind of justice to the turbulent history of Spain. It wasn't 800 years of Khilafah ala min haji nubuwa. It was 800 years of backstabbing, 800 years of unity, 800 years of disunity, 800 years of Muslims teaming up with non-Muslims to fight other Muslims as well. And eventually the tide turns. Now, gradually the Christians from the north start conquering and conquering and conquering. Eventually, Granada Falls. Granada Falls means the end of that particular period of Muslim rule in Spain. The most grievous portion of this particular minority state that we've ever seen is the history of Spain. The history of Spain and what happened to Muslims. Uh, they had uh, agreements with the Spanish, with Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, that you can stay, Muslims can stay, and you can have your own religion. But you see, the church had other ideas. The church had other ideas. The church had the idea of reconquering, all, uh, reconver of converting these Muslims, and they did it by force. If you're going to speak about this, it'll probably take 10, 20 minutes to speak about history, but it's something that I encourage everyone to go and read up about what actually happened during Spain in those particular years, because we, where we are right now, that's one of the possibilities that might come in future. Know about it so that when it starts happening, you know the signs. Anyway, so when Muslims started emigrating from Spain, Things were not very easy for them. They made it very difficult. Some of them managed to migrate. Some of them did not manage to migrate and they stayed on. So those who managed to migrate, what then happened? Ulama gave fatwa, you have to migrate. Imam Abu al-Abbas when Sharisi, the Maliki alim, gave a fatwa at the time. He wrote it in the Risala. Asna al-matajir fi hukmi man ghalaba ala biladihi nasara falam yuhajir. He wrote it in response to muhajireen that came from Andalus. They came to Africa. They saw after a while, but Africa is not nice as Spain used to be. Not as nice, we want to go back rather. We rather want, and that's when he gave this. How could you ever even contemplate going back to the Dar al-Kufr? But some went. Some went. Large-scale migrations in the textbook might look feasible, but in reality, there are problems associated with it. So anyway, 
from this moment on, Islam is on the back foot because the momentum that was building from Spain then leads to the voyages of discovery. Then it leads to discovering the route around the Cape. And when the route around the Cape was discovered, then the doorway to the East opened up and colonialism started in the 1500s, 1600s. They come around, you see, Allah had placed Islam and Muslims strategically, geographically in the middle of the, of the known world. So anyone from the, from the West, if they wanted to trade with the East, we were the natural middlemen. They couldn't do without us. They had to go through us. We were the Middle East, you have to come through. And then when they discovered the route around the Cape, they said, we don't need you any longer. We'll attack you from behind. We've uh, bypassed your route. So economically, we went down. Ge uh, geopolitically, we went down uh, in all different ways. And they gained the upper hand over us. They marched in, but colonialism was different in one important way. It was different from cr the Crusades. It was different from everyone else. The Crusades was, were religiously motivated. They came in and they converted by force. The Crusades, as much as they were religi the, the religiously motivated, uh, colonialism was not religiously motivated. Colonialism only had one thing, economic greed. They had no other but economic greed. Therefore, they didn't really make it a point to go and convert. What did they do? They came, they took what they wanted. Do you want to stay Muslim? By all means, stay Muslim. Yes, some missionaries tried to ride on the back of colonialism and tried to convert, and they did convert a few here and there, but it wasn't part of the mission. If you consider the fact that, who was it? It wasn't the church that came around with ships sail around the Cape. It was not even the British crown. It was the Dutch East India Company. It was the British East India Company. It was purely for economic gain. India was being ruled by the British East India Company up to 1857. Only after that, Queen Victoria became the Empress of India. Before that, it was similar to ShopRite going to Malawi and taking over the whole country. It's a company that goes and takes over the entire country, running a, terrest a, a, a terrestrial empire as such. So it was pure economic greed. And it's that same economic greed which is still the one that is in operation today. It's not about uh, uh, conversion. So this led to a situation of migration as well. What happened? Two types of migration. One was forced migration. Forced migration in which sense? When they entered our countries, Mujahideen stood up to defend Islam. Um, the Dutch came to Indonesia. As they came to Indonesia, they started taking over the countries. One student that went from Indonesia, spent 20 years studying there under Sheikh Ibrahim al-Kurdi, who is the teacher of, uh, the father of the teacher of Shah Waliullah. He comes back to his country, he says, they've taken over my country, he starts a jihad against them. They capture him after a while, they send him to where? They send him to the Cape of Gudo, Sheikh Yusuf al-Maqasiri. Maqasiri goes to, to the Cape of Gudo, and they say, this is how we'll get rid of these people. What did they do? Try to... Uh, just get rid of him, wherever. Send him first for nine years to Sri Lanka, still too close to home. For the last five years of his life, they send him uh, to the Cape, let him go there and uh, die. We don't want him here. But they didn't try and convert him. They left him over there. Those other Muslims that were forcibly taken, they, they didn't try and convert them. Only in the Americas did they forcibly convert. Elsewhere, they didn't forcibly convert. So that was forcible migration. They we didn't have a choice. They we don't ask, can you live in Darul Harb? What choice do you have? You're in chains. But as time went on then, there came voluntary immigration as well. People from the home countries said that, well, now what's happening? Uh, we are part of the British crown. As such, uh, let's move to Britain. Let's move to America. Let's move to France. And they started moving over. This was the post-colonial period. When the, these countries had destroyed themselves economically through the... First World War and the Second World War, when that was happening, then they needed hands to build up their economies again. So they opened the doors of migration. Come and work by all means. We have a lot of work for you. Come and work for us. They actually invited Muslims to come and settle in those countries. Voluntary uh, migration happened. And now we sit with the issue, there are minorities living in these countries. So what happens now? What would the fuqaha have said about something like this? Is this man qadara ala idhari deenillah? Which way do we look at it? Those communities, when they build masajid, they build madaris, they establish makatib. No one stopped them from any of that. So the situation that they lived in uh, is very similar to what now? It's not a hostile situation. It becomes very similar to those Muslims who went to Habasha once upon a time. It becomes very similar to this situation envisaged by Mawardi when he said that if your being there can lead to the spread of Islam, then you must stay. Don't even consider Hijrah. 
So this kind of situation started arising. What is that now? It is a Muslim living in Darul-Kufr. It's not a Muslim country, but in under what? Benevolent situation. Benevolence, you're allowed to practice your deen. And how many haven't found Iman? How many haven't found deen through the presence of Muslims in such countries? This was uh, what was happening during this particular period now. Now comes the age of Islam that tries to reassert itself. From the 1940, late 40s, 50s onwards, Muslim countries are becoming independent. And there is one big question in the minds of so many. The prestige that we once had, the honor that we had, the dominance in the world that we once had, where did it go? How do we get it back? And various different groups tried various different means to reclaim some of it. The present movements, whichever movements they happen to be, sometimes it's a matter of da'wah, sometimes it's a matter of tabligh, sometimes it's a matter of taking up uh, weapons against invaders. All of these are attempts at reclaiming and reinstating something that existed once upon a time. But by its very nature, it could never be the full product. It could never be the full product. It's like the blind men of Hindustan. They say the king sent a whole of blind men. I've never seen a elephant. Go and see the elephant and come and explain to me. No one can see. So someone feels the leg and he says an elephant is like a tree trunk. And someone feels the ears and he says elephants are like big leaves. And someone feels a tusk and he says long and very smooth and sharp at the end. So everyone has a quadrant of the circle. No one has the full circle. Part of the problem that we're suffering from is that every person working in this particular quadrant feels this is it, this and this alone. No, the solution is going to take all quadrants working together. It's going to take all of them working together. This is where a problem comes about from two angles. No one can differ amongst themselves as much as Muslims can. No one can. Imam Muhammad ibn Sulaiman Kurdi writes, and he says, if you look at the ulama of Islam, and the way that they can differ one another, you realize the power of ijma. If people who can differ so much can actually agree everyone upon one thing, that must be very, very true. And uh, our country is no stranger to that. The amount of differences of opinion that there are, and every quadrant trying to be the circle, this part of the problem. That is one problem, it's the internal one. And then there is the external one as well, the interference one. The one that pulls things because we have been studied. We have been studied, they know exactly which bus button should be pressed to elicit which responses. Something will be done and the TV screens will be full about Muslims doing this and Muslims doing that. We've been studied very, very well. And at a time such as this, when solutions are being presented, solutions are being offered, this is the final solution, that is the ultimate solution. It makes sense for us to do what? Just be careful, because some of these solutions are tailor-made solutions for a purpose other than the purpose that you might have thought it for. The, uh, specifically, my topic is migration during a time such as this. So what do you do? Under the circumstances, those Muslims who happen to be living in a benevolent situation where they are practicing their deen without any uh, problems, and they, don't have to, they, they are not being driven out of their countries, then what should they do then? They are not under, under any kind of obligation to make hijrah. Yes, there are some other countries where it does become. Spain once upon a time. I want to mention the example of Spain now. You say, if it is said, people, leave your countries and make hijrah. We can say that to one person. We can say to five persons. We can say to ten persons. Back then, when the, when the uh, 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 Dawla Saudiya was establishing itself, against, they rebelled against the Ottomans. They were trying to establish themselves. They said the Ottomans are kafir. Why? Because, يَحْكُمُونَ بِغَيْرِ شَرْعِ and there's something that must be mentioned as well. You know, sometimes we lionize the Ottomans. We lionize the, as if the Ottomans were nothing but good. Yes, Sultan Abdul Hamid. But before him, some had brought in Swiss laws as well. They were the first to actually make, make away with some Muslim laws under the influence of the young Turks and others like that. But it, uh, 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 you know, what Kamal Ataturk eventually pushed over was a, a shell that was empty already from the inside. So we lionize them at times. There are some problems, but they were still a khilafah. They were a khilafah. And then the Saudis rebelled against them. The Wahhabis rebelled against them from that side. So they came to the ulama of Makkah, they're debating with them. And all the arguments that they mention, why you must leave the dawla, you must come live in the dawla Islamiyah, it's the same arguments being repeated today. Exactly, they're quoting the same scholars. Sulaiman ibn Sahman and Hamad ibn Aqil and uh, Abdullah Babutain and their arguments against uh, the other ulama. Uh, you know, Fulan wrote this in his kitab and it's wajib to make that and wajib to make that. Mufti Razal gave a wonderful answer now on the issue of do you find, you know, the differentiation between dawla is uh, what shall we call it now, Islamic state and a Muslim state. 
No, no single country can claim to be the ultimate product. But back then they were claiming it. We are the Muslim state. And everyone must make hijrah to us. Now I remember something. My Ustad Maulana Muhammad Ibn Hafiz Abdurrahman Mia told me when he was doing hifz in Hijaz, in the 50s or the 60s or something like that. He remembers someone coming around a little bag full of passports. Who wants to buy citizenship, Saudi citizenship? 10 pounds or whatever you get Saudi citizenship. You tell me who can get that right today. They are saying migrate. You can't even go for Hajj Umrah properly. Who's going to accept you for migration purposes? Not only that, migration for who? For one or two persons. Let's look at the practical realities when it comes to migration. Oh, there it comes. <laughs> Let's look at the practical realities. Just consider for a moment demographics. When those fuqaha said you must make hijrah, they were thinking of a situation of 25 Muslims in uh, Sicily who were captured and now, okay, you must make hijrah from there. Did they consider that we've got 600 million Muslims in the Indian subcontinent? Who's going to give them uh, some place to make hijrah to? They are the poor Rohingyas right now. The Rohingyas, who's giving them a place to go to? There's the Rohingyas now. Uh, an earlier group of them actually made hijrah. The Arakanis who are in Hijaz, Makkah, Madinah, you'll find them. From the 1960s till today, they don't have citizenship. Second-class citizens in Saudi Arabia. Who's going to give you a country to make hijrah to? So when the question is said, "Alam takun ardullahi wasi'a," we can very well say that "Daqat alayna al-ardu bima rahubat." It's not as easy to make hijrah. Demographics militate against it. Where are you going to make hijrah to? You want two persons, perhaps, but you ask Kuwait for citizenship, ask uh, the Emirat for citizenship. Uh, you're not going to find it. Second problem, immigration regulations now. Immigration regulation not like pack up and move. No, that might have been once upon a time. Once upon a time is not uh, uh, simple. There are a whole lot of laws before you can actually get citizenship, not just of Muslim, uh, supposed Muslim countries, but any other country in the world for that matter. And then logistics. In the 1860s, in the 1860s, Russia invaded the Caucasus, the Circassians. The Circassians, together with Imam Shamil, waged a war against the Russians, jihad. Not a single one of these wars succeeded at the time. You can just rush through the number of wars that were fought. Sheikh Yusuf in Makassar fought in the 1600s, he did not succeed. Thereafter, Imam Shamil fought in the 1800s, he was captured eventually uh, in prison. Amir Abdel Qadir of Algeria fought a jihad against him. He was in prison, kept in France, and then eventually allowed to live the last of his life in, in Damascus. And then... In India, 1857, ulama, mujahideen, went out. It did not succeed. We can go beyond that. 1835 in Bahia in Brazil. Many might not know about what happened there. But the largest amount of African slaves that were exported was not to North America, it was to South America. Brazil had the hugest amount of them. And then many of them became free. And they formed themselves into communities that would purchase the freedom of other slaves. Form a community. We purchase the freedom of any other slaves and the first thing we do is buy him clothing to dress like a Muslim, not like a slave any longer. They had a mutual cooperation society going unequal by anything else that we could think of. And then they decided to make jihad against the Portuguese at the time. And the Portuguese came down upon them so hard that all the ringleaders were executed. The community was left without ulama. Within uh, a few decades after that, not a single Muslim was left. Circassia. The Circassians, they made jihad, they did not succeed. At the end of the jihad, it was suggested, let's expel them to Ottoman territories. The Ottomans said, by all means, come. Across the Black Sea, come. So they packed those uh, ships with so many, many more people than it could contain. And all being shipped off to where? All being shipped off to Turkey. Not going to stay here any longer. Arrived in Turkey, and now comes the logistics. What are you going to do? Where are you going to live? It became so difficult. First of all, the trip across the Black Sea was so bad. So many of their relatives had to be just die and being thrown into the Black Sea that they say, till today there are Circassian communities in Turkey that don't eat fish. Why my grandfather, his body was thrown into that particular sea. When they came here in Turkey, then often there was no opportunity. How do you create a new life over here now? You see, 550, 60, 500, but this was a few hundred thousand at the same time. Hijra is not uh, such an easy option right now. It is said, the only sources for this are Russian sources. And they would of course be biased. Russian sources state that up to 70% of the Circassian Muhajirin applied to go back to Russia. Rather go back, we'll have some, we have our villages, we'll go and populate it again. 
So that was tried, it did not quite succeed. But look at the advantage of it. Look at the advantage. Those people's descendants are still today there. They, they are Muslim. They went back, yes, under Russian rule. Yes, some of them did were converted. But imagine this. Imagine Kamal Ataturk takes over Turkey. Promulgates laws, like no one else before him. What the Ottomans did was just one or two laws here and there. He did away with Sharia. He did away with everything. He did away with the Arabic script. He did away with the Arabic Adhan. Everything. Now imagine, we told all the inhabitants of Turkey, all of you must make Hijrah. Then, by the time Erdogan came around, there would be no one to vote for him. But we have to take here, we have to take a long-term view of things. That's now the next thing. Before rushing into Ahkam of make Hijrah, take a long-term view of things. It's easy to say, make Hijrah right now. But if those people had departed, in fact, there's a fatwa by Imam Shihabuddin Ramli of the Shafi'i Fuqaha. He was asked about someone that lived in Aragon in Spain and this person explaining to him that, look, this is our situation. We have our own masajid, we have our own mahakim, all of these things. Should we make Hijrah or should we make? Now the Shafi'is have this uh, bit of an uncanny thing. They say once a place is Darul Islam, it remains Darul Islam forever. It can never revert to Darul Harb, Darul Kufr, no matter what you do. Now I know it's a bit of an idealistic situation. We know that uh, to call Spain up to today Darul Islam very unlikely. But he was looking, there are still some Muslims over there. For as long as they remain there, some light of Islam is still there. He said, forget about coming to live in Egypt. You live in, you go back and you keep alive what you can. While it lasts, try and preserve what you can for as long as you can. We have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back. We can look back today and say that in the manner that history unfolded from that point onwards, it was probably not the right answer. Why? Because very soon the Reconquista would come. The Reconquista, they would all be not just conquered, but they would be forcibly converted in that very grievous, that very heart-rending history of Muslims. Many of us might have read the story of that youngster whose father used to take him in the secret room in the house and then in the darkness would write on his finger a line and tell him, this is what? This is Alif. This is Ba. Now, you don't tell anyone, not even your mother. Then the mother would ask the child, what's your father teaching? He said, no, nothing. Playing marbles, whatever, but he can't. They had to teach their children to be secretive. On Sundays, the, 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 what did they call them? The Inquisition would come around to your house. First, were you in church today? Secondly, do you have pork on your table today? We cannot even imagine what it is like. So many of those people afterwards, you know, after making this kind of uh, pretended life, many of them then just decided, I'm going to give up this taqiyya. Declare to the whole, I'm a Muslim, and they know the outcome of it. You'll be burned to death immediately. That's what people had to uh, undergo once upon a time. Anyway, so I'm saying that when we consider hijrah today, consider what the fuqah have said, then consider demographics, consider numbers of people, consider immigration regulations, where are you going to go to? Consider logistics of moving this amount of people from one part of the world to another. And don't forget the long-term view. These people might be living here today. Maybe the ahkam are being changed. They, if not they, their children, if not they, their grandchildren will bring Allah Sharia back into the mahakim of that particular place, inshallah. It's a period, a transient period that we are going to. So when we try to to give permanent solutions to temporary problems, we run a risk. We run a risk of uh, creating what? Person had a cold, and you gave him what? You gave him leprosy. So, small little thing, don't make the mistake of short-term solutions. Anyway, when we look at the early precedents now, those early precedents, what was there about citizenship? I'm going back to citizenship. In Habasha, there was a very real example of Muslims living in a benevolent society that has kind of been set aside, not forgotten, not neglected by the fuqaha, but they only responded to what they saw. They didn't see that kind of situation. We can very well see it today. And in their writings, they actually adumbrated, they foreshadowed a situation where something like this would happen. Aside from that, there was something else. Two other precedents that are often over looked, which, which is that tribal life in the Arabian Peninsula, everyone wasn't forced to come to Medina. You know, when someone converts, he's not forced to come to Medina. What is he? Don't go and live in Makkah by all means. But you've got a choice. Rasulullah sallallahu used to tell his da'is when they go out, the mujahideen, he says, call them to Islam and then invite them to come settle in Medina. فَإِن تَحَوَّلُوا إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ فَلَهُمْ مَا لِلْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَإِن أَبَوْا أَيَّتَحَوَّلُوا you live in a tribe. Your tribe is not a Muslim tribe. 
Your tribe is not a Muslim, but you can live there. No one is troubling you for your deen. Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah, in one of his kitabs, Ahkamul Quran, mentions something. And he says, The Fardul Hijrati ala man ataqaha. Fardul Hijrati ala man ataqaha. This duty of Hijrah that the Quran and the Sunnah speak about. He speak about the Fard, and then ala man ataqaha. Only for those who are able to. He says, Innama huwa min ajli man futina fi deenihi. Only for the person who's being tested, who stands a chance of losing his deen, he must make hijrah. So, the mafumul mukhalafah of that is, if there's no fitya in your deen, by all means you can stay. There's no wujub of hijrah upon you. So, that is now what? First, two, two precedents. Habasha is the one precedent. Tribal life in the Arabian Peninsula is the other precedent. And then some fuqaha ibn Qudam al-Maqdisi mentions in uh, Al-Mughni, and he says that there is even the example of Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib who remained in Makkah until one year before Fatih Makkah. He was Muslim, he was living there. Now, some say, well, he was hiding his deen. Some say he could uh, protect himself against whatever problems there were. The fact is he wasn't being asked to make hijrah immediately. Very, very late he made hijrah. So all these precedents considered, I think they have some important indications for us as minorities where we are living today. When the call comes, that abandon and make hijrah to somewhere else. One other important fact I need to mention about the hijrah to Habasha. When Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa eventually made hijrah to Medina, what happened to Jafar ibn Abi Talib and others? They wouldn't immediately send a message, come back. They stayed. Badr took place, they stayed. Uhud took place, they stayed. Khandaq took place, they stayed. Only after Hudaybiyah did Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam send the message. Because Hudaybiyah meant a political turn of, of fortunes. And only after Khaybar was, was won, then they arrived at Medina. So why did Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam leave this? minority immigrant community there because there was no istiqrar in Medina yet. There was a dawla, there was no istiqrar. Why? Because what was all along, kanu yaghzunana, they used to attack us. Badr was, they attacked us. Uhud was, they attacked us. Khandaq was, they attacked us. And then after Hudaybiyah, Nabi said, al-ana naghzuhum. Now the tide turns. Now Ja'afr ibn Abi Talib said, come back now. So for them to have stayed there for so long definitely has certain indications. It was better for them there than here. Yes, there were some negatives as well. Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh, Nabi Sallallahu own cousin, he became a murtad over there. And this happens in minority situations as well. It happens. In Makkah some had become murtad, in Habasha some had become murtad, but there was istiqrar for them. And they served as something that Muslims could always think of falling back on when things don't work right over here. So minorities have their particular position in terms of uh, what we've discussed over here. However, um, there are a few words of caution, a few words of caution in, in, in conclusion that I want to mention. What we have mentioned about Khilafah, what we have mentioned about Hijrah, what has been mentioned about the Ahkam of warfare and prisoners and all of these things. When we live in a minority situation, and you know in all honesty we need to say that this difference between minority and majority is, is actually uh, uh, fading away because the world is now this big global village. You can be living anywhere you're exposed to the same kind of things that a minority exposes you to. But for argument's sake we'll speak about it. Uh, in a minority situation, you run a risk. You want to see that risk? Let's just go to India in 1857. 1857, jihad declared against the British. For the jihad, did not succeed. What did we do after that? Two streams, two directions. Muslims took two directions. One is the direction that you, know I are, you and I are related to, that we stem from. Those that said, consolidate deen right now. The madaris, establish deen, preserve what we can. And then there was another tradition. It was this other tradition led by people such as uh, Sayyid Ahmad Khan, his student, his associate, Malvi Chirag Ali, and that other fellow that was a Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Qadiani as well. They started something else. I'll, for lack of a better term, I'll call it dilution. Jihad doesn't mean that which we think it to be. We cannot make jihad against the British. It's wrong. Malvi Chirag Ali wrote a critical exposition of the popular jihad. Sir Sayyid wrote what he wrote, well known. Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Qadiani's point of departure was the same thing. No jihad against the British any longer. Now, when we live in a minority situation, then sometimes in order to acclimatize and be part of things, we tend to then bend over backwards in order to explain away and make palatable to the society amongst which we live and start explaining certain things away. It's, it goes by a certain name, they call it apologeticism. If we get into apologetics, no, no, it doesn't mean that. Jihad is not that, it means this thing here. We run the risk of falling into that.
No jihad will be there. Ila yawmil qiyamah. Which jihad is a proper jihad? That's a different question. But jihad will be to the day of qiyamah. Let not the minorities become the starting point for the dilution of deen. What needs to happen elsewhere needs to happen. There's no jihad in South Africa. We're living in a benevolent society. There's no jihad in all of these minorities that we live. But if some country, some Muslim country gets invaded in some part of the world, they're going to have to do what they have to do. Uh, if someone tries to do something to uh, correct, uh, normalize an abnormal situation, they have to do what they have to do. But we must not make the mistake of diluting deen to such an extent that we completely explain it away. Sometimes what Mulvi Chirag Ali, what Mirza Ghulam Qadiani and them did back then, we find some very orthodox uh, people become guilty of sometimes. Let's not cross that particular line. That is one of the tests of a minority. Don't cross that line. Secondly, assimilation. The second problem is assimilation. When you live as a minority, you always run the risk of just melting into the woodwork of the society in which you live. We can see the assimilation. You want to see it? Go to North, South America. The Arabs that went over there, uh, some 60, 80, 90, whatever amount of time it was, they went over there and what happened? They did not take the proper precautions. The result of it is how many ex-Muslims are there? How many children of ex-Muslims are there that have completely lost themselves? So a minority... While you know you can stay there under the circumstances as I've tried to sketch out here some or the other, but you have certain duties and one of the most important is preservation of your deen. Amongst those maqasid of the sharia, that one is probably the paramount one. So by, live as a minority by all means. Don't lose what you have. Don't assimilate. Assimilation is one of the strongest demands being made uh, by the, the world of kufr in which we live. Elsewhere they said that what? Uh, just change your deen a little bit. Change your deen. Makkah they said to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Just change this a bit and change that a bit. And assimilate into our society. Then we'll slap you on the back and say, good Muslim, good Muslim. You are a proper type of Muslim. This is how Muslims should be. We run that as do not assimilate. Do not get so apologetic that we lose what is part and parcel of the deen of Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And then the last one, the last point of caution that I want to mention is that of vigilance. While there is benevolence in the societies in which we live, we have to take note of the fact that there is a neo-fascism on the rise in many of the countries that we witness elsewhere in the world. A neo-fascism on the rise. A situation of we don't want these Muslims in our countries any longer. But those parties fortunately have not yet very much come into power in certain countries. But we see what's happening in France. In Britain there are those particular parties. In Australia there happen to be those particular parties. Look, we, alhamdulillah, our problems here is one of the ANC and the DA. We are still sitting within Kandla, alhamdulillah. That's not our major problems for now. But what happens elsewhere can happen here as well. So the duty of vigilance is the duty of the ulama. The permission to live in a minority is provided that you keep your eyes peeled for any of these kind of things that might happen. And when it is required, then the ulama must give the necessary guidance. It should not become that descendants of people who said we are living as minorities will eventually say my father used to be a Muslim it was forced into something else but it depends upon to what extent are we going to keep the institutions that keep deen alive to which extent are we going to keep those things those doors open the masajid the namadaris and all of these things that Allah has given us there are a number of misunderstood texts so I was supposed to have spoken about this earlier, but with the last five minutes that are available, inshallah, a number of misunderstood texts. People mentioned to our youth, you know, there's a hadith Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, So they say, how could you ever live in a mushri country? Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, I dissociate myself from you, but nothing to do with you. Much of the problem we have here, you know what the, uh, was, was it, Sufyan ibn Uyayn said, what, al-ahadithu, don't just read the zahir of the hadith and start making amal upon it. We saw that problem elsewhere in aqidah and fiqh and so many other problems. This is one of them. Just consider the sababul wurud of the hadith. It was an actual state of war. Muslims were attacking a certain tribe. And there were other Muslims living amongst that tribe. When the killing starts and you're going to be subjected to it as well, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had to pay. What did he? You have to pay. What's it now? You have to pay blood money for them. Paid half the blood money for it. That's when he made the statement. 
And then the Sahaba asked, but why? He didn't say why not. He just said, لا تتراء نراهما. They must be so far apart from one another. He didn't say they must come live in Medina, must be Hijra. He said, don't live amongst them. Live separate from them to such an extent that you can't see their fire. But you're still not a muhajir. You're still not in Medina, Munawwara. You're living there. Just don't live there where you can be hurt. Where you can be hurt when the fight eventually comes. That is the sababul urud of the hadith. He didn't tell them, all of you must make Hijra to Medina, Munawwara. Imam Tahawi rahimahullah in Mushkilul Athar argues of the point, you know, the La Hijrat Abad al Fatwa, the Hanafiya take the view that is Mansukh, and he mentions a very interesting hadith in this particular regard. He mentions interesting hadith. A Sahabi by the name of Fudayk comes to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He says, Ya Rasulullah, innaum yazumun annamma anna, innaum yazumun annamma lam yuhajir halaka. That's what people are saying. No Hijrah, you are gone. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, he says to him, Ya Fudayk. أقم الصلاة وآت الزكاة وهجر السوء using the word هجرة وهجر السوء واسكن من أرض قومك حيث شئت تكن مهاجرة واسكن من أرض قومك حيث شئت تكن مهاجرة so there was no duty upon him to make hijra necessarily right now and this hadith from Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم as well so when we consider these, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ تَوَفَّاهُمُ الْمَلَائِكَةِ This ayat will be mentioned, the hadith will be mentioned. It will be mentioned, hijrah will remain till the day of Qiyamah. Yes, the Jumhur's use hijrah will remain till the day of Qiyamah. But before that hijrah is going to be undertaken, then I would just like that something else goes into the situation. All of those demographic and immigration and logistic and the long-term view, all of that must be considered. It's a different world from the one of uh, one single Muslim who becomes a Muslim in Dar al to make hijrah. All of these things need to be considered together. I think I've come to the end of my tether. And uh, throat is somewhat dry as well. For, uh, uh, we'll end off it here, inshallah. Just about done. We'll end of here. I think I've covered all that I needed to cover. So, Akhir Dawana and Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, Wasallallahu Wasallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad, Wala Alihi, Wasahbi Ajmainu. Thank you for listening to this Seekers Hub podcast. Our goal is to raise $75,000 in monthly donations to build a global Islamic seminary so that dedicated students all over the world can complete their journeys and become Islamic scholars. You can help them by becoming a monthly donor at seekershub.org slash donate.